Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the, let's see, this is Thursday already, Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show, the month of January almost coming to a close. It seems like it went very quickly. We celebrated Christmas. Wasn't that just a week or so ago? Anyway, we're glad to have you with us today. Uh, James Blend is producing today's program, Clark Hilton Engineering. Today we're going to talk with Jenny Donnelly. She's the author of Still, Seven Ways to Find Calm in the Chaos. If you have any connection to chaos or experienced it or witnessing it, you're going to want to listen to that conversation. We're also going to talk with Dan Kramer. He's Executive Director of Strategic Programs with Wycliffe Bible Associates. We'll talk about the fact that uh, much of the persecuted church uh, is seeking to have the scriptures translated into their language at great um, sacrifice and great cost. We'll talk with Dan Kramer about the challenge of Bible translation in general and certainly the, the peculiar challenge to trying to help uh, those in places where the Bible is not welcome to translate it into their language. Dan Kramer will join us in the 5 o'clock hour. First, a look at some of the day's headlines. A string of newly resurfaced video clips of former National Security Advisor John Bolton spurred President Trump and his supporters Wednesday to highlight what they described as serious credibility questions raised by both Democrats and Republicans amid the Senate impeachment trial as he as the president tweeted, game over. Well, not quite. In his tweet, uh, the president linked to an interview of Bolton in August of 2019 where he discussed Ukraine policy. In the Radio Free Europe Radio Liberty interview clip, Bolton makes no mention of any illicit quid pro quo and acknowledges, as Republicans have claimed, that combating corruption in Ukraine was a high priority for the Trump administration. Now, Bolton also calls Trump's communications with Ukrainian President Zelensky warm and cordial without mentioning any misconduct. The video seemingly contradicts reported assertions in Bolton's forthcoming book, The Room Where It Happened, that Trump explicitly told him he wanted to tie military aid to Ukraine to an investigation into Joe and Hunter Biden. Separately, um, clips of Representative Adam Schiff, now the lead House impeachment manager, in which he says have been uh, unsurfaced, uh, in which he says Bolton had a distinct lack of credibility and was prone to conspiracy theories. This week, Schiff said Bolton needed to testify in the impeachment trial as an important and believable witness. Thus saith politicians, one thing one week, something else the next. Hillary Clinton or her representatives have on at least two occasions declined to accept legal papers delivered in connection with Tulsi Gabbard's lawsuit against her. Gabbard's attorney claims Gabbard, a Democratic congresswoman from Hawaii who's seeking the party's 2020 presidential nomination, filed a $50 million lawsuit against the former secretary of state last week over the former secretary of state's insinuation that Gabbard was a Russian asset. And Vanessa Bryant, widow of the NBA superstar Kobe Bryant, gave her first public statement Wednesday on the deaths of her husband and their 13-year-old daughter, Gianna, and seven other people in a helicopter crash on Sunday, posting a photo of the complete family with their four children. 
My girls and I want to thank the millions of people who've shown support and love during this horrific time. Thank you for all of the prayers. We definitely need them, Bryant wrote in part. Vanessa Bryant's statement came as Los Angeles County Medical Examiner Coroner confirmed Wednesday that all nine victims in Sunday's crash have been identified. Well, the president could be acquitted in the impeachment trial as early as tomorrow, according to number three Republican Senator John Brasso. And that, of course, uh, will require a vote of the full Senate. Uh, as of uh, now, this the senators are still posing their questions to the president's uh, defense and the prosecutors or the House managers. That will continue uh, until about 11 o'clock p.m. Eastern time. They've had their 16 hours. That will be followed tomorrow by a number of things. Uh, that will include a vote on whether or not to uh, hear witnesses and uh, perhaps, depending on how that goes, uh, whether or not to acquit the president. House Democrats released $760 billion green infrastructure dollars, um, according to National Review. And Elizabeth uh, Warren proposes criminal penalties for spreading voting disinformation online. Watch your memes, ladies and gentlemen. Michael Flynn has taken on egregious FBI misconduct, little-known FBI agent in guilty plea withdrawal. Whether or not that's going to be successful, that's a story in itself. New York Times hires BuzzFeed news editor who green-lighted the publishing of the bogus Steele dossier. That's the New York Times. And convicted of sex crimes as a man, felon no longer deemed threat because of gender change. So he was convicted of sex crimes underwent a sex change, and he's no longer liable for the crimes he committed against people who are still suffering the consequences as victims of those crimes. What a world. Fourth quarter GDP rose only 2.1%, and full year 2019 post slowly, slowest rather growth in three years at 2.3%. Uh, drug deaths have fallen for the first time in nearly 20 years, buoying U.S. life expectancy. And acclaimed Harvard scientist is arrested, accused of lying about ties to China. And MS-13 gang member was deported five times, found in the U.S. again. That tends to be a familiar pattern. And the feds have exposed the longest illicit cross-border tunnel ever discovered on the southwest border. On this day in history, 1948, Mahatma Gandhi, 78, is fatally shot in New Delhi in the um, uh, Hindu by a Hindu extremist. Uh, he and his co-conspirators would be executed. On this day in 1933, Adolf Hitler becomes Chancellor of Germany. And finally, on this day in 1968, the Tet Offensive begins during the Vietnam War as communist forces launch surprise attacks against South Vietnamese towns and cities. And although the communists are beaten back, the offensive is seen as a major setback for the U.S. and her allies. Well, lawmakers uh, today again, had the opportunity to ask the House managers and the president's defense team questions as part of the Senate impeachment trial. It comes as lawmakers also begin to position themselves for a crucial day on Friday in which the chamber will look uh, to decide whether to wrap up the trial altogether or to call more witnesses. And it's not at all clear which of those two options are likely to succeed. Well, Wednesday was question and answer day in the Senate impeachment trial of the president, and it included a thought exercise in which President uh, Obama asks Russia to investigate election rival Mitt Romney. Senators acting as jurors and in some ways judges submitted questions in writing to Chief Justice John Roberts. He then read them out loud, read them out loud rather for answers from the president's lawyers or from House Democrats impeachment managers led by Representative Adam Schiff. Some of the highlights, we'll get into that when we come back from the break. Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we'll talk with Jenny Donnelly, author of Still, Seven Ways to Find Calm in the Chaos. And in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Dan Kramer, 
Executive Director of Strategic Programs with Wycliffe Bible Associates. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 20 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later, Jenny Donnelly, still seven ways to find calm in the chaos. There's lots of that going around. Well, Wednesday was a question and answer day in the Senate impeachment trial. Senators acting as jurors and in some ways judges submitted questions in writing to Chief Justice John Roberts. He then read them out loud for answers from the president's lawyers and from House impeachment managers led by Adam Schiff, Representative Adam Schiff. Some of the highlights in the previous days, the president's lawyers contrasted the charges against Trump with what they say was a much more questionable open microphone incident in 2012 when President Obama told Russia President Dmitry Medvedev, Medvedev, that right, that he would have more flexibility on Eastern Europe missile defense after the upcoming election. Well, Schiff picked up on the point, offering an imaginary scenario in which Obama asked for a Russian investigation of his 2012 election opponent, former Massachusetts Governor Mitt Romney, who now is a Republican member of the Senate. Let's use that analogy and make it more uh, comparable to today and see how you feel about this scenario, Schiff said. Well, it went back and forth from there. You can imagine how Pleasant that was for either side. House Democrats voted uh, on the 18th to impeach the president for abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. The two articles based on that phone call. Well, unknown to Zelensky at the time, the president had put a hold on the uh, congressionally approved military aid to Ukraine. Joe Biden has uh, boasted in that in 2016, while serving as vice president overseeing the Obama administration Ukraine policy, that he threatened to withhold a billion dollars in U.S. aid to Ukraine unless the government fired the prosecutor, Victor Shokin. At the time, Shokin was investigating Burisma, which reportedly paid Hunter Biden $83,000 per month to serve on the board. Later in the hearing, Senator Cruz submitted a related question to the chief justice. If Mr. Schiff's hypothetical, if Mr. Obama had evidence that Mitt Romney's son was being paid a million dollars per year by a corrupt Russian company and Mitt Romney had acted to benefit that company, would Obama have authority to ask that that potential corruption be investigated, Roberts read. Well, Schiff responded to Cruz's question, asserting that whether an investigation of Romney were justified or unjustified, it would still be impeachable for Obama to ask for it. Another uh, highlight, Schiff asserted that uh, the president wasn't concerned about burden sharing by other nations to help Ukraine, but only with benefiting his own reelection. Consulting the official White House transcript of the call between the two, Schiff read Trump's words, I need you to do us a favor, though. President Trump has said that us meant the United States. But Schiff said, does that sound like burden sharing? Of course not, Schiff said on the Senate floor. However, Deputy White House Counsel Patrick Philbin, he pointed to a June 24th email with the subject line POTUS follow-up and its contents on the Trump administration's concern that the United States provides Ukraine with 10 percent of its military budget and that other European countries are not doing enough. Philbin added he's raising burden sharing and uh, President Zelensky agreed with him. Another highlight, uh, Trump lawyer and Harvard law professor Alan Dershowitz asserted that a quid pro quo in foreign policy is not unusual. Yesterday, I had the privilege of attending the rolling out of a peace plan by the president of the United States, he said, regarding the Israeli 
Palestinian conflict. And I offered you a hypothetical the other day. What if a Democratic president were to be elected and Congress were to authorize much money to either Israel or the Palestinians and the Democratic president were to say to Israel, no, I'm going to withhold this money unless you stop all settlement growth or to the Palestinians, I will withhold the money Congress authorized to you unless you stop paying terrorists. And what if the president said uh, quid pro quo? If you don't do it, you won't get the money. If you do it, you get the money. Well, in talking about a hypothetical Romney investigation sought by Obama, Schiff argued that not all quid pro quos are the same. And if uh, the quid pro quo is for personal political benefit, it's a different category. In another highlight, uh, Philbin, one of Trump's lawyers, pointed to uh, criticism from Adam Schiff and the House's other six impeachment managers or prosecutors that Trump did not follow the suggestion of his advisors in the phone conversation with Zelensky. Well, uh, they say that the president defied and confounded every agency in the executive branch. That is a constitutionally incoherent statement. The president cannot defy the agencies within the executive branch that are subordinate to him. It is only they who can defy the president's determination of policy. What this all boils down to is that it shows this case is built on a policy difference and a policy difference where the president is the one who gets to determine the policy because he's been elected by the people to do that. Representative uh, Zoe Lofgren, one of the House impeachment managers, argued it wasn't the point. The president surely does not need the permission of his staff about foreign policy. That information is offered to you as evidence of what he thought he was doing, Lofgren said. He did not appear to be uh, pursuing a policy agenda. He appeared with all the evidence to be pursuing a corruption a corruption of our elections that's upcoming, a high crime and misdemeanor that requires conviction and removal. Another highlight, uh, the president's lawyer, Jay Sekulow, suggested that Adam Schiff could be called as a witness, similar to how then-independent counsel Ken Starr was a House witness in 98 to explain his investigation of President Clinton. Starr is now one of Trump's lawyers. Sekulow was responding to Schiff's suggestion that Roberts, presiding over the trial, should decide whether Trump may cite executive privilege to prevent witness testimony. In the Clinton impeachment proceeding, the witness was at, that actually gave deposition testimony were witnesses that had either been interviewed by deposition in the House proceeding or grand jury proceedings, Sekulow said. There was uh, another statement from Adam Schiff, manager Schiff, that the chief justice make a determination of executive privilege, he said, adding, if you get to the point of witnesses, for instance, if one of the witnesses to be called by the president is Adam Schiff in the role basically of Ken Starr, Ken Starr made the presentation before the House of Representatives had about 12 hours of questioning. If Representative Schiff is called as a witness, would in fact uh, issue um, be an issue of constitutional speech and debate clause privilege uh, deciding by the presiding officer. Well, uh, another uh, highlight, Schiff said that uh, Trump, by not providing documents to House investigators, is behaving as if he is the state. Well, Philbin, the defense, responded to Schiff and the other House managers uh, saying they were having it, uh, trying to have it both ways. And the back and forth continued. As I mentioned, tonight until about 11 o'clock local time, uh, they're going to continue to pose questions uh, to the House managers and to the president's defense. And then tomorrow, the voting begins, or at least the debate preceding the voting. And it's expected that either there'll be a decision that, yes, we will hear from witnesses or we won't. And this whole thing is drawn to a close. The president is essentially acquitted. So tomorrow will be a big day, something to uh, uh, to listen and watch for. Well, Chief Justice of the United States, John Roberts, blocked um, Kentucky Republican Senator Rand Paul from posing a question during this 
Senate impeachment trial Wednesday uh, that would have named the alleged whistleblower at the center of the case. Now, he has denied that the name of that individual would have been outed, but he did name uh, individuals he believes uh, have a political connection to the committee as well as uh, the possibility of being part of an orchestrated effort that produced the whistleblower. Roberts, for now, has uh, uh, control because he actually receives the questions in note cards from senators, then reads the question aloud in the Senate chamber to be answered by either House Democratic managers or Trump's defense team. But it's been learned that Roberts may soon lose his grip on the proceedings amid a torrent of criticism, both inside and outside the Senate. The Federalist co-founder, Sean Davis, he condemned what he called Roberts' arbitrary and unilateral censorship of senators and Senate business and reported that Roberts had initially sought to block even general questions of the intelligence community whistleblower. When Republicans threatened a vote rebuking Roberts on the record, Davis reported Roberts backed down and decided only to prohibit mentioning the whistleblower's name, which he does not know. A reporter for Roll Call observed the, uh, that during the break in the trial on Wednesday, Paul was fuming. He was fuming again today. I don't want to have to stand up and try to fight for recognition, he shouted, according to a reporter who noted that Paul's complaint was audible from the galleries above the chamber. I have to fight for recognition, I will. Well, asked whether a Paul, who has long raised concerns about possible intelligence community overreach, would press the issue during the upcoming question period, a spokesman for the senator uh, said that, in short, that is to be determined. Last year, Paul was vocal about wanting a testimony from the whistleblower on the record as inconsistencies emerged in the whistleblower's claim. Again, till 11 o'clock p.m. this evening, senators will continue to field questions Uh, to the House managers or the president's defense. There's some question as to whether or not uh, the chief justice can call witnesses without Senate approval. And while I don't have time to go into all of that, it's a rather interesting uh, thought. Uh, Is it possible? First of all, is it legal, constitutional? And is the uh, chief justice inclined to do so? If the witnesses that Trump critics are demanding were all that that critical uh, to the the House's impeachment case, one would think that the House would have at least attempted to secure their testimony before. But under these circumstances, is it possible that the Chief Justice has the authority to and the desire to call those witnesses on his own? So that's one of the questions that uh, is going to be on the on the minds of many tomorrow when this next phase of this process takes place. Again, the House managers they had uh, 24 hours; they took 22 of them. The president's defense, they had 24 hours. They took, I believe, 12 of them. The senators have 16 hours, and they most likely will take all 16 of them, followed by decision-making tomorrow. Up next, we'll talk with Jenny Donnelly. Still, seven ways to find calm in the chaos. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 34 minutes after 4 o'clock, that is our time, and you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Now, let me ask you a question, and I can guess for many of us, the answer is a resounding yes. Are you stressed? Do you feel anxious? Are you worried? Now, we don't like to admit to such things because we're not supposed to be any of those things. But if the answer to any of those questions is yes, my next guest, Jenny Donnelly, knows from experience exactly how you feel. And in her new book, Still, Seven Ways to Find Calm in the Chaos, she shares with readers just what it takes to finally find rest, even in the midst of chaos. Now, how is that even possible? She shares with her readers her own day-to-day struggle with finding calm, as well as seven ways to find rest. And we'll talk about them. Most people think their anxiety, their depression, or unrest is caused by their circumstances, she says. 
Uh, Yet there are hundreds of thousands of people who are anxious and depressed who do not have circumstances to match their level of unrest. On the flip side, many people with extremely intense life circumstances can live without torment of anxiety or depression. Um, she identifies both uh, the root and the uh, of the unrest and the ways to eliminate it in her book, Still. Well, Jenny Donnelly is an author, speaker, and entrepreneur. She is the founder of Her Voice Movement, a national community gathered for the purpose of equipping and empowering women to live and lead biblical truth. She is a founder with uh, her husband of the Collective Church here in Portland and founded, um, I'm not even going to try to say the name, I apologize, she can clarify, which exists to develop um, biblical leaders. She and her husband, Bob, live right here here in Oregon with their five children. She joins us to talk about her latest book, Still. Jenny, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're so welcome. Thanks for having me. Okay, I I was not courageous enough to attempt to pronounce the ministry that you founded. Can you, uh, first of all, say the name and then tell us a bit about it? Yes, I can. No problem. It's a hard one to say. I think when you don't realize that you're going to be doing something bigger um, in the future, you name stuff just kind of, we threw it out there when we had just a couple people, you know, like, hey, let's just call it this. Um, although it is a very profound meaning behind mm-hmm. it, uh, how you pronounce it is to telestai, and it's the Greek word. It's the Greek word for "it is finished." The last words that Jesus spoke on the cross. I think that's worth uh, learning and uh, exploring. So good for you. <laughs> Thank you. Well, let me begin by asking uh, an important question. Your book is titled "Still: Seven Ways to Find Calm in the Chaos." I think many of us are looking for rest, whether that's physical rest or rest for our soul. Can you define for us what rest is and what it should mean for us as we are pursuing that that calm, that stillness? Yes. So a little over 10 years ago, the Lord brought me into a conversation with him, you know, one of those moments where he gets your attention. And he just shared with me, Jenny, your, your paradigm of work and rest, work in relation to rest and rest in relation to work is inaccurate. Hmm. And he said, you know, really, have you noticed that you're really looking forward to when this deadline is over with, when this project is accomplished, when, you know, when the baby's out of diapers, you know, just kind of living for, okay, when this is over, I'll finally get this relief. That's almost a fantasy. Like I'll, I'll finally get a relief. And he said, you know, have you noticed that when that thing is over, the next one is already, the next form is already here. So he said, I want you to find rest in the middle of your life. I want you to find rest in the middle of a t- tornado. Actually, I was drawing a tornado on a piece of paper when he shared this with me. And I thought, why am I drawing this? And he said, in the center of the storm is perfect stillness. Mm-hmm. And that's where I am. I'm in the middle of the storm. I'm not after. I'm not when the deadline is met. I'm not after the project. He, you know, he's, he's helping me, his daughter, who's um, somebody who I'm a doer. I'm a go-getter. I'm, a, I'm an achiever. I'm a driver. So he was helping me find a place of rest. See, I used to think it was the action of resting, like it was something that you did, yeah. not some, not a place inwardly. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes, it does. What you're essentially describing is relationship. And we don't often think of rest as relationship. If we're talking about being in the middle of a storm, finding him there and somehow experiencing that peace that only he provides. Yes, that's right. And so rest is a person and you're exactly right. It's Jesus and it's in him and he even wants to rest in us. You know, that's what the Bible says. So I had to find rest was an inward position and place rather than circumstantial. I had to disconnect the idea of relief having anything to do with my life and my surroundings and my feelings even and my emotions. 
And so it really became a place of dwelling for me in Jesus. That seems so counterintuitive to what we tend to think is required in order for us to experience that uh, that deep sigh of relief, rest that that you're describing. Um, why do you think it is that we have such a different view of what rest uh, is and why we're so frustrated when we can't find it? I think for me, I had a hard time really seeing the good in all the adversity that I was experiencing. I didn't stop and go, you know, this is really producing fruit in me. This challenge I'm in right now is really producing fruit in me. It was almost more like, wow, life is really crazy. It's really demanding. Can't wait till this is over. I couldn't appreciate, again, what the Bible talks about in James with what is God doing when he's even allowing life to have pressure and is in, and, and producing the fruit through through those situations and producing something in us, which is very valuable. Now you've described the desire to escape. Mm-hmm. You've described rest as a person. Um, what difference does it make in the life of a person who's surrounded by chaos or turmoil and finds that rest in him? What, what might, kind of difference might you expect? And you certainly experienced that yourself. What difference did it make for you when your circumstances remained the same, but your ability to find rest in the midst of them um, was born. Yeah, this is what's really interesting is when I experienced a lot of unrest, you know, call it anxiety, call it worry, call it stress, but just that thing on the inside, the undercurrent of even dreading things, dreading good things, you know, that just yeah. that feeling. Yeah. Um, when I, when I lived in that and, and I still have bouts of that, I don't even want to say that I'm, you know, hundred percent free of that. I don't know if we can be completely free of all worry. I mean, it's not a good thing to have all the time for sure. But, um, but I will say that when I lived consistently in this, I, I didn't have near the workload or the assignment from God in my life than I do now. And so really the circumstances of our life, whether it be our finances, whether it be the projects that we're entrusted to, whether it be our marital situation, I don't see a direct relationship between how much life is happening to us and how much anxiety people have. Um, I'm much more peaceful, much more full of ease and faith with about 10 times more workload than when I was living that way. So um, you know, and I've always had faith. I've always had a faith in God. I just did not know how to manage the fear that came with the adversities of my life. We're talking this afternoon with Jenny Donnelly. She's the author of Still, Seven Ways to Find Calm in the Chaos. This book resonates so much with me because I've experienced that same feeling that you did, that sense of you're excited that you have an assignment to serve the kingdom, but then you have that sense of dread. Oh, once that's over, then I can take a deep breath. But to experience right. peace in the midst of the preparation, the, the carrying it out and then rejoicing afterward, that's what you, you really long for. Now, the subtitle of the book uh, is Seven Ways to Find Rest. How can we find rest and what are these seven ways? Well, I do prep the reader in 10 chapters, believe it or not, before I even get to the second half of the book, which is the seven ways. But in the prep, I do share my testimony. I think it's important for people to know that I I did come from a broken home. And when I reverse engineered my anxiety, it came from really following the route to a household where I did not have my father living in my household. So it was kind of like, hey, Jenny, guess what? Life is up to you. If you're going to make it, it's up to you. And so I had, I had um, carried my life in a 
way that I was, it was really up to me. Even though I loved Jesus, even though I love God, I just thought, well, it's up to me. You know, so I had this wrong perception of how much God was willing to carry. And so I do talk a lot about that going in because I want to get the reader to a place of forgiving those people who have abandoned them, who have neglected them, who have really, you know, contributed to possibly a perspective that is not right. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's really important. But the seven ways are very practical. And I still open this book and go, wait a minute, I'm in unrest. I'm feeling a little coiled up on the inside. Let me open this up and grab one of these seven ways. And they all all work. Um, But the seven ways, number one is leaning. And so in this chapter, I just address the false supports that we use when life gets dizzy. And that could be addictions. It could be, for me, it was stress. You know what? I'm just going to grab some stress, get through this thing. It's only going to be four days and I'll finally be able to be on the other side of this and I'll probably be a little crabby to my family and to the people I love. They'll just forgive me and we'll get through it and I'll get to the other side. The problem is, is these false supports do get us down the road a little bit in our own, in our own perspective. We think it's working. And so what we, what I do in this chapter is talk about trying to convince the reader to lean on Jesus, the unmovable, you know, and, and, and becoming super aware, wait a minute, I'm grabbing irritability right now to get through this. I'm actually choosing irritability as a fuel source. So that's what I really address in that chapter. I don't know if you want me to explain any more, but that's kind of the gist of how these um, seven ways are broken down. Well, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue to walk through them and how we can find uh, rest in the midst of chaos. Seven ways to find calm in the chaos. The book is titled Still. We'll take a quick break and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show about 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. Continuing my conversation with Jenny Donnelly. She's an author, speaker, and entrepreneur. She's the founder of Her Voice Movement. She's also a co-founder of an organization she and her husband began, the church, the collective church here in Portland, Oregon. The book is still Seven Ways to Find Calm in the Chaos, and we're talking about how stress, anxiety, and worry can rob us, rob us of the rest and uh, peace that we are to enjoy in Christ uh, in the absence of uh, of calm. Now, what do you think is the most difficult part of learning um, to rest, to recognize him as the source uh, in the midst of our chaotic existence? I think the hardest thing is to recognize fear as a, you know, false evidence appearing real. I think that, you know, fear has an element of truth to it. I'm going to give an example. So, you know, in my early years in my, in my marriage, before I really went through some deep inner healing, um, if my husband rolled his eyes at me, you know, not because he's a terrible, evil person, but because he's a human getting frustrated with me, I, I absolutely right then and there decided he does not love me. He does want, not want me. He's rejecting me. The sky is falling. And because it was um, triggering that father wound, I had not yet walked fully through. So instead of saying, hold on a minute, hold on, let me take this, cap- this thought captive. This is fear. This is not real. Instead of recognizing, you know, that there is a, there's an, a, the enemy has found a little, little crack to come through and mess, mess with me and my marriage. Um, instead of recognizing it for what it is, it just feels, well, that's true. You know, just, it just feels true. So I had to, and I, and I teach this to people a lot, but I have to look at myself and say, hold on a minute. I just lost my joy. I just lost love. I just lost heaven. And this feeling I have in my, in my mind and my body right now feels bad. And that awareness, Georgine, I think it's this awareness of, hold on, I'm feeling hell in my body, not heaven right now. 
So what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, Holy Spirit, is this you giving me this feeling or would this be fear trying to manipulate me? And so then what we do is we look at fear and then we ask the Holy Spirit to give us the truth, recognizing that this, this is a lie. And we take that, ca- that thought captive and then we ask the Holy Spirit for a truth. So, and then we get into more specifics about what fear is that. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a lack of awareness. To answer your question, I think it's just a lack of stopping and realizing what's happening in us right now. And we can prevent the spiral downward if, if we're aware. Well, as you mentioned earlier, the first 10 chapters of your book really focus on the source of much of our unrest. Um, you talk about your own story, but you share the stories of others as well in recognizing, OK, what is it that brings me to the point where I um, I don't feel like I can experience rest in the midst of my current circumstance as opposed to someone who clings to Jesus and finds rest in the midst of equal or worse circumstances. So you spend a considerable amount of your book um, searching for the, the core of what deprives us of our rest. Yes. Yes, I do. And I really want people to find their authority over their mind because in reality, you know, the enemy's already been defeated, right? So how does he even manipulate us? And it's through this agreement that we make with him and not even recognizing hold on a minute, I'm being manipulated right now. I'm not going to agree with that. So I spend some time helping the reader find their authority over their mind and getting the Word of God in there to stabilize and to anchor them, which is Jesus, you know, anchor them in Jesus so that they can get their authority back instead of feeling like a ragdoll just being whipped around by life. So there's a lot of time that's spent on that because I want them to know the um, empowerment that Christ has given each one of us. To take um, to take back territory in our mind. Yeah, I love that you uh, are very practical. And how do I um, do just that? Uh, take every thought captive and not allow what has become something of a reflex to spiral out of control that leads to a wrong conclusion. Yes, you know, there's three, and I've heard this before, and we could probably there'd probably be a couple different ways to explain this, but I've heard this before, and so far it's it's pretty spot on. But that fear, all fears can be reduced maybe to one of three types of fears. If you were to look at any situation where, uh oh, here I go, I'm feeling anxious, I'm feeling irritable, I'm about to blow, or, or even anxiety can come in the form of I'm disconnecting, I'm shutting down, I'm disassociating, I'm isolating, and I'm gone. You know, it's this like disappearing act that we can do. And so when that feeling comes, we can say, okay, which of the three fears is it? Let's look at this right now. Is it number one, I'm all alone. I feel completely 100% alone. Is that the fear that's trying to torment me right now and manipulate me? The second one would be, I don't have any help. No one's helping me. It's all up to me. This whole thing is up to me. Or is the third fear in play? And that is, um, I'm all alone. I have nobody here. I don't have what it takes is the third one. Mm -hmm. I don't have what it takes. That one I forget. Every time I list it, I forget because that was not the one. That, that's never been mine. In fact, I've had a lot of confidence in my ability to do things. I was praised as a child for that. Um, but again, I didn't have my dad around. My mom was a single mom and had to work all day. So guess which one sh- would show up for me? I'm all alone. Yeah. And so even the other day, Georgine, I need, I need everybody to understand that this is, this is so practical. I still read this book because I believe that God wrote it, and I'm just—I was just the first one to read it. I still use these these methods um, to get me. Hold on a minute, Jesus, you didn't go anywhere. You're still here. Yeah. And so there's not this place of like I rung the bell. I'm never going to feel worried again. Just the other day, I'm talking 48 hours ago. 
I was doing an interview just like this. I told my husband, hey, I got this interview and I heard him say, I have to leave. Well, whatever he said after that, I completely turned off in my mind and I said, and I, and I almost panicked. I said, no, you can't leave <laughs> because I have two toddlers. I have five kids, but two toddlers were waking up out of bed. And I said, wait a minute, you can't go. You can't leave. I have this interview. And he looked at me and said, Jenny, parent from a place of rest. Let's get back into rest because he knows. And I said, well, you just said you were leaving. And he said, I told you I was leaving at 9.15. I didn't even hear the rest of what he said mm. because it triggered aloneness that quick that all of a sudden I was imagining my toddlers climbing on top of me during the Skype interview. You know, I I'd <laughs> had it all played out in my mind in a nanosecond how bad this was going to go. <laughs> so I just want everybody to know that I live this, but yet how much more authority do I have? Because we didn't get in an argument. I didn't get stressed because I was like, okay, I'm so sorry, you know. But I had the privilege that that's a unique moment because he stopped me and said, Jenny, you're wrong. There's more moments, maybe 99 out of 100, that nobody's going to stop you. No one's going to stop you and say, hey, hold on a minute, you heard wrong. It's going to have to be you. It's going to have to be you that says, I might be wrong right now. Let me stop and just get, get, get my mind together here. I have the mind of Christ. What's going on? Which of the three fears is it? And then I just recognize, and, and as soon as I realize, I feel all alone. I'm not alone. Hey, thank you, Lord. That's how I'm taking the, the thought captive is by facing the fear and not trying to cooperate or dance with fear, but yeah. to face it and say, I see you. I see what you're trying to make me feel. You're trying to make me feel alone. You know, hi. And then, um, Jesus, are you here? Oh, you are here. Okay, great. Good. We're back on track. So it is very practical. <laughs> yeah, very practical. You mentioned one of the ways uh, to, to find rest. The, just mention a couple others. You mentioned uh, leaning on him rather than other supports that are uh, are insufficient. What are a couple of other ways that we can uh, find a way, uh, way to rest? Okay, so the second one that I talk about is um, called letting just let go. And it's really based on the more we try to control our life, the more we lose our rest. And in this chapter, I walk the reader through um, living a life of adventure rather than one of control and seeing your life as a great story that's unfolding. And in the end, we win. You know, if you go to a good movie and if it's really good, they've done a really good job with nobody knows how it's going to work out okay. And it's just, I wonder how this is going to work out, you know. And so um, Jesus is the hero of our, of our life. He's the hero of our story. And we always have a superhero ready coming in, you know, doing things for us. He's not an indifferent God. Yes. The, the third way is um, just about intimacy, being intimate in our love relationship with Christ. And this one perhaps was the most profound for me, life altering for me. And it's intimacy could be also said into me see. And this really takes us out of a religious context and puts us into this relationship. And I just believe that most of us probably don't know our identity apart from our accomplishments. And so we need to be loved just because we're his. And that one was tough for me because I was good at doing. But when he said, Jenny, I just want you to be, I thought, I don't even know. I don't even know what that means. So that was a, that was a couple year transition for me. Um, there's a couple others, of course, because there's seven altogether. The last one, door seven, is wrestling into rest. This one is, you know, the word rest is right in the middle of wrestle. Mm -hmm. The Bible says to labor into rest. So it can feel like you're not resting when you have to actually, okay, I'm headed for rest. I'm in unrest and I have to go. You kind of have to go against the grain of your flesh when you're in unrest to get back into rest because your flesh will actually want to slip out a little bit. It just says, let's just do this. Let's just go over the edge. So we have to wrestle our flesh, get our spirit back in front, get our spirit back in authority. And I just give some really practical, it, I, I basically compare it to get, taking the wrong exit on the freeway and you go, oh no, now I'm going down some weird side street. I don't know where I'm at. But we know this, 
there is an on-ramp to the freeway again. Yes. You know, nobody's too far gone. You're yes. going to get back on the freeway. So really helping people understand that there, there is always an on-ramp to rest. You're never too far gone. The book, once again, is still Seven Ways to Find Calm in the Chaos. There's much more to the book than our, conver- our brief conversation could reflect, but it's a great practical uh, book to help us find that, that rest, that peace that he uh, has for us. Jenny Donnelly, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you. It's been great. Really I really appreciate it. it. By the way, the book is forwarded by Lisa Bevere. You've got uh, news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. This hour, we're going to talk with Dan Kramer. He is Executive Director of Strategic Programs at Wycliffe Bible Associates. We're going to talk about the intense persecution and death threats among those who are seeking to have the Bible translated into their native language and how the... Um, uh, the efforts of uh, Wycliffe uh, are uh, coming alongside to help these uh, individuals, churches, and organizations. We'll get into that with him in our next couple of segments. Well, as expected, senators are continuing to pose their question. House managers and Trump lawyers are responding to senators' questions that are being uh, read by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, who is presiding over uh, this hearing. That is expected to end as early as um, well, late this evening, and tomorrow is very likely, if if not tomorrow, Saturday, very likely the day when they begin to take up issues of whether or not witnesses are going to be called, and we will know whether or not this whole process will end, and the president will be acquitted, whether or not there will be a call for witnesses, and the process uh, will um, continue for quite some time. All of that is going to uh, be what happens in the next 24, 48 hours. Uh, but as of now, the uh, senators are posing their questions to the House managers and to uh, the president's lawyers. I began yesterday with a, um, a piece that uh, Dennis Prager published on why so many young people are unhappy. And he began the first part of that um, with data showing the apparent unprecedentedly high rate of unhappiness among young people in America and elsewhere. Um, But he focused primarily on America. Well, the rates of suicide, self-injury, depression, mass shooting and loneliness at all age uh, ages are higher than ever recorded. It seems that Americans may have been happier, even certainly less lonely during the Great Depression and World War Two than today. Now, that can be very puzzling when you consider the uh, the prosperity that we have enjoyed, the uh, safety net that's now in place, none of those things was in place during those periods. Even with today's unprecedentedly high levels of health, longevity, education, material well-being, which just goes to show you that those things are insufficient to meet the needs of the, the human heart and soul. But nonetheless, he writes that there is, of course, no single explanation, and I listed a number of possible explanations, increased use of illicit drugs and prescription drug use, and less human interaction because of constant cell phone use are two widely offered valid explanations. In fact, later uh, in the latter part of the program, we're going to talk about the fact that a new survey in the UK indicates that modern families spend an average of four hours or less with their kids per week. But Prager goes on, less valid explanations include competition, grades, anxiety, capitalism, and income inequality, all of which has been far greater in the past. And then there are young people's fears that because of global warming, they are have a bleak and perhaps no future at all. He doesn't believe that a loss of values and or rather he believes that a loss of values and meaning are two of the greatest sources of unhappiness. And that uh, certainly uh, seems like a plausible explanation when you consider that these young people, this younger generation, 
uh, lives with an unprecedentedly high level of health, longevity, education, and material well-being. Among the values lost are those um, uh, communal associations, as the great foreign observer of early American life, French Alex de Tocqueville, wrote in 1831, Americans' unique strength derived largely from their participation in innumerable non-governmental associations, professional, social, civil, political, artistic, philanthropic, and, of course, religious. But these have all dwindled as government has become even larger. Whereas Americans got together and formed bonds of friendship through non-governmental associations, through what organizations Will Americans form friendships today? In a video presentation at its 2012 national convention, the Democratic Party offered its answer. Government's the only thing that we all belong to, the narrator said. Now consider that for a moment. Government is the only thing that we all belong to. Then there are traditional middle class values like getting married first and then having children. Today, a greater percentage of Americans are born Uh, to unwed mothers than ever before, and fewer people are marrying than ever before. There are, for um, the first time in our history, more single Americans than married Americans. That's not to suggest that everyone should be married, but this is a statistic that might explain, at least in part, some of the despair that um, that these um, studies seem to reveal. And while it's certainly possible to feel lonely in a marriage, people are far more likely to feel lonely without a spouse and increasingly without children than with a spouse and children. And now we come to the biggest problem of all, the lack of meaning. Aside from food, the greatest human need is meaning. I owe this insight to Viktor Frankl and his classic work, Man's Search for Meaning, which was first read uh, many years ago and which influenced many more than any book other than the Bible. Karl Marx saw man as primarily motivated by economics. Sigmund Freud saw man as primarily driven by the sexual drive. Charles Darwin, or at least his followers, sees us as primarily driven by biology. But Frankel was right. As regards uh, economics, poor people who have meaning can be happy, but wealthy people who lack meaning cannot. As regards sex, people who do not have a sexual life, such as priests who keep their vow of chastity, many widowed and divorced older people and others, but have the meaning, uh, have meaning, can be happy. Sexually active people who do not have meaning cannot. As regards biology, there is no evolutionary explanation for the need for meaning. Every creature except the human being does fine without meaning. And nothing has given Americans or any other people, for that matter, as much meaning as religion. But since World War II, God and religion have been relegated to the dustbin of history, or at least the effort has been made. The results, more than a third of Americans born after 1980 Affiliate with no religion. This is unprecedented in American history. Until this generation, the vast majority of Americans have been religious. Maybe just maybe the death of religion, the greatest provider of meaning, while certainly not the only, is the single biggest factor in the increasing sadness and loneliness among Americans and so many others. There was a study in 2016 published by the American Medical Association. Uh, The JAMA Psychiatry Journal found that American women who attended a religious service at least once a week were five times less likely to commit suicide. Common sense suggests the same is true for men. Well, the bottom line, the reason so many young people in particular are depressed, unhappy and angry 
is that they have been told that God and Judeo-Christian religion is nonsense. Their country is largely evil, their past is deplorable, and their future is hopeless. That seems to be a major reason, if not the reason, for so much unhappiness. Not capitalism, not inequality, not patriarchy, sexism, racism, homophobia, xenophobia, but rather having no religion, no God, no spouse, no community, no country to believe in, and ultimately, no meaning. That explains much of the unprecedented unhappiness, and it explains the widespread adoption of that secular substitute for traditional religion, leftism. But until Judaism and Christianity, leftism does not bring its adherents happiness. Now, it's a very interesting analysis, and as I mentioned, I've posted both parts one and two of uh, Dennis Prager's um, analysis on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page, um, why so many young people are unhappy. And this is an explanation I th- I'm sure will be unsatisfactory to many because they hate to suggest that uh, religion, as the culture would understand it, a relationship as we would understand it, those who are followers of Christ, uh, has been relegated to the dustbin of history. And yet the fruit being born out of that uh, lack uh, is bitter indeed. Up next, we're going to talk with Dan Kramer. He is executive director of strategic programs at Wycliffe Bible Associates. We'll talk about the persecuted church. And despite the intense persecution and death threats, national Bible translators are uh, tenacious in seeking to have the Bible translated into their native tongue. That's up next right here on the Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We think about Bible translation as people in a dark room, perhaps with a candlelight, uh, simply writing out the scriptures word for word, translating from one language to another. But there is a significant amount of danger for many who are committed to translating God's word into their mother tongue. Well, Wycliffe Associates is an international organization that is on the front lines of doing just that. Uh, Bible translators and partners with local churches, they help them advance Bible translation. They continue to receive requests for help from Christians living in highly volatile regions who are committed to bringing the translated scriptures to their language groups. We don't often think about the persecuted church and the desperate need for scriptures in their native language. Well, here to talk with us about the challenge of Wycliffe Bible translators um, and how they are equipping the church abroad, particularly the persecuted church, is Dan Kramer. He's executive director of strategic programs at Wycliffe Bible, and we are just delighted to have you with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here, and you're right on track with uh, what's happening around the world. So great start to the perspective. We had a mission conference here in the Portland area a couple of weeks ago, and I had an opportunity to speak with a Bible translator who spent, I believe it was 15 years, translating a portion of Scripture into into a particular Spanish language and talked a little bit about the challenge of doing so uh, accurately. So I think our listeners have some notion of the the challenge of being precise and accurate in translating the scriptures, but we haven't often thought about the challenge that those who are in areas where the church is persecuted, where the Christian faith is not permitted, the challenge they face in um, having their the scriptures translated into their own language. Can you talk a little bit about uh, some of the, uh, the the believers around the world who are desperately looking for help in that regard. I, I can, and it's a very different landscape, whereas you might want a lot of time to train people and groom people and interact with them. You don't get that with persecuted areas. You get a matter of days. And one of my um, first experiences was in China, um, where mm. 
I was told you can come and you can help, um, but you're going to get five days to do the training and it's going to be very noticeable. And here are the rules um, to doing so. Um, five days is not a lot of time to launch people um, into a project. And so um, it's, it's noticeable when you bring people out of a village into a training environment and you can't go into the village. And so it's very, very different. And you become the burden on those people groups, yet they're so desperate they're willing to take a risk. Well, there's a tremendous cost that many are paying in order to have the Bible translated into their language. And I want to talk about that in just a few moments. But give us a brief rundown on how many languages are spoken, how many languages need to have the Bible translated uh, into their particular language. Yeah, so there are over 7,300 languages that are known today. Um, that actually becomes more complex when you determine um, what is a language. By Western standard, we were categorized at 7,300. When you get to the local church, they might say, yes, you've told me that's the name of my language, but really this is enough dialect difference to actually make that bigger. Um, The reality, though, is even if we took that 7,000 number, there's less than 700 full Bibles in the world. So there's a lot of work to do. There's many New Testaments in progress. There's not so many Old Testaments in progress. Mm. So there's still a great need for the whole Testament of God to be translated. I think it's difficult for many of us here in the United States, where we have access to a Bible of virtually every description that meets our particular preferences or some of our interests, and yet the thought that there are people around the globe, and believers in particular, who have never had access to a Bible in their language, and that there are people within those groups who are willing to risk everything in order to uh, make that a a possibility. Yeah, it's a complete, total different desperation that we don't really quite comprehend. I've gotten in some challenging situations where um, I I just, I don't even know how I was going to train some certain groups in the situations that were given to us. But when they stand up and give a testimony and they mm. see what's happening in those villages, you can't refuse. You have to do something to help them write that. Write yep, absolutely. What's the new methodology that um, you helped develop called MAST? Yeah, this um, actually came out of a request in Nepal, um, and it stands for Mobilized Assistant Supporting Translation. These were national translators who were doing the work, and they were doing quite well at it. Um, But they said, you know what, this is something that was created out of the West. We need something more owned by who we are. Could Mm. you help us develop a method to where we could own it, we could run with it, we have a church who can facilitate this. And so that landscape has changed over time that said, we want to do something that the local church can own, they can oversee the quality of it. And they can run with it much faster than what's been happening in the past. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. We started this in 2014 and it's just set a fire around the world of activity that is unprecedented. Now, how does this method compare with the traditional methods of translation? Well, it is um, very much faster. Um, It does what the name and the acronym says. It mobilizes um, and it assists and it, it mobilizes the local church. So instead of saying, give us your your people who qualify for all the training that we require, we flipped the formula. And we said, give us your people willing to do the work who speak the language and can read a source text that's trusted. And that brings many more people to the table. Traditional translation usually took two, three, four people from a village and brought them into a, a high-level academic training, which took years, and then brought them into a process of translation, which took years. This says we're going to take you at your language level and we're going to surround you with the expertise pieces 
and build it as we go. And we have seen things that takes months instead of years. And so we've had translations that have happened, um, New Testaments, in a matter of weeks, months, and a couple of years. And that's a huge dynamic and change from 10 years, 15 years, or 20 years. Yeah, yeah. Well, it seems to reflect a certain degree of urgency, um, that there is a desperation, particularly in these areas where Christi- Christians are persecuted, evangelism and Bible translation are not allowed. Yeah, and that's really where it was born. And Nepal is not a soft country to go into and say, let's do Christian activity. Church has grown, even since the time I've seen it, in 10 years. But it's still a persecuted church. And so to go and do activity and take people and say, we're going to translate scripture, has a lot of um, persecution, but also government logistics that are hard to work through. Um, You can't just go out and do that. So the church has to actually work in private and secret and say, you know, we're going to do this. But to do this, you have to give us ownership to do that. And we can't depend on you because this could shut down any second. And that's a desperation that we're working with. And that's the ownership sense that we try to to give away and say, you can do this. Here are the pieces. Here are the tools. Here are the training. Bruce Smith, who's the president and CEO of Wycliffe Associates, is quoted as saying Bible translators meet in secret with Wycliffe uh, Associates team members to map out translation strategies because they can't risk being seen with foreigners. He says, I am humbled and overwhelmed to see the tenacity of Christians in the most extreme anti-Christian environments on earth, in spite of the hostility of religious and governmental authorities, in spite of the risk of violence, of arrest, of torture, even death, Christians ardently press on. This is such an encouragement and a challenge, I think, to the rest of us to think about that part of the family, that uh, branch of the body of Christ, and how they are so committed to trying to get God's word in their native lands that we're, they're willing to risk it all. It is. I mean, it's even more encouraging when you find out where exactly is this happening. It's places you might hear about in the news, and then you find out, wow, in the same places we're hearing about the terrorist activity, there are Christians who are rising up and saying with fierceness, we're going to do this. Do you have the support to give us to actually help us in assisting this job? Um, with with everything we got, we want to get behind that. You know, I've often said that God is always working behind the scenes in ways that you're never going to read on the front page of your newspaper or hear the 24-7 news media covering. But there's always a much bigger story going on than we are made aware of. We should just assume that. And then when we find out some of the details, just rejoice uh, that what we know to be true has been confirmed. Yeah, it really is. So you hear phrases like, it's a small world, and uh, you start finding out um, first, how many people know other people and how, how God has woven that together. There's no other explanation than that. Mm-hmm. And then you also um, just kind of see what was laid as a foundation of the work um, in the preparation of individuals, but in systems as well. Um, it, I mean, there's no denying what God is doing, and it's, it's really a question of our obedience. Are we going to jump in and follow what he's doing? Um, and it's just a blessing when you do. We're talking about Wycliffe Associates and the Bible translation work they are doing and equipping others to do. We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment. I'd like to find out, for example, how this uh, this program, MAST, is used in countries where Christianity is persecuted and evangelism and Bible translation are not lawful. Uh, how do they f- uh, find Wycliffe? How do these associations, how are they made? And, and all of that. We'll get into that with my guest in just a few moments. Again, we're talking with Dan Kramer. He's executive director of strategic programs with Withcliffe Bible. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing a conversation with Dan Kramer. He's Executive Director of Strategic Programs with Wycliffe Bible. Now, Wycliffe is one of the world's leading Bible translation organizations. The associates were organized in 1967 by friends of Bible translators in order to accelerate the work of Bible translation. Wycliffe Associates empowers national Bible translators. They provide God's Word in their own language, and they partner with local church to uh, direct and guard translation work um, be- because millions of people around the world, we've, as we've just discussed, uh, still uh, wait to have scriptures in their language, uh, the language of their hearts. Wycliffe Associates is working as quickly as it can to see every verse of God's word translated into every tongue to speak to every heart. They're directly involved in speeding Bible translations by providing technology and training and resources, logistics, networking, expertise, volunteers, discipleship, church planting, support, and so much more. We're talking about uh, the translations that they're engaged in and helping in 101 countries, and I'm just delighted to have uh, Dan Kramer join us to help us better understand the work and I think ultimately how we can come alongside and uh, help them in this effort. Now, how do um, uh, language groups contact you and say, we need help, we want to translate the Bible in our native tongue? Yeah, there's there's a variety of different ways. One is um, through the church networks themselves. So we're actively partnering with church networks. Some of them are from the West that connect um, to the worldwide church. Some of them are just church networks that are local. So we hold conferences actively. Um, and we actually look for the leaders who can be people of influence to find those language groups. We also work with other organizations that are out there. There are probably about 130 Wycliffe organizations in affiliate, different levels of affiliates, and so they also bring languages to the table. We also have a field staff that's out there actively, and those are primarily now nationals who are living there who are going out and working with the local church networks to find where they are. But it's mostly word of mouth as well, and it's people who know people, and it can be anywhere in the world who says, um, I know a pastor, I know a leader, I know an, an organization, and they're encountering people without scripture. It's as easy as asking us, and then we start doing the research to verify the language and the region, and that we don't duplicate work, and then we try to engage the leaders of that language group. What you're describing is a significant commitment and a significant amount of work. Now, in some traditions, some uh, cultures, they're more of an oral tradition. Um, in, in some countries, there isn't necessarily a written language. We here who have access to the scriptures, as I mentioned, of every description, we tend to have less commitment to God's Word. We are described, and I think sometimes rightly so, as being biblically illiterate. What difference does it make in a culture that is being persecuted, for example, and the leaders are desperately asking for help to translate the Scriptures? What kind of uh, impact is that likely to have on those people groups and church leaders who are attempting to spread the gospel in their respective areas? Wow, that's a, a great deep question. The first thing I thought of was, all the different audiences that was behind the layers of your question. And we try to pursue the audiences of every different functionality of language, and that includes written, oral, um, sign language, and even those who are deaf and have never learned a sign language. So we're encountering all of that population. We try to serve them with scripture access and translation. Um, but the uh, second thing is, is what, what changes? What actually happens mm-hmm. in those people groups? And so we actually look for something called spiritual outcomes. And what we should be doing is seeing what Scripture says it does. And Scripture is a powerful tool, 
Um, and so things like uh, teaching and healing and salvation decisions should all be a result of Scripture, and that's exactly what we see happening. Um, we see churches being built up in places where churches are not allowed. We see additions on churches because the membership is growing um, where churches are not allowed. So that growth is phenomenal. And the stories that come out of what is happening, I'll give you one extreme example. Please. Um, we even work with the deaf-blind, and we have a system that actually helps them to access Scripture within days. And we've seen a deaf-blind and a Muslim family come to Christ and become the first light of that family. Um, so imagine just how God is working through the hearts of a person who can access scripture and then be a testimony to his whole Muslim community and family. Um, that's the phenomenal thing that can happen from scripture. And that's what we want to see more of. My very first event, somewhere in the world, there was a 17-year-old who heard scripture for the first time, and he, the tears just started pouring out of his eyes. And I thought, how many people in my existence that are 17 would cry over hearing scripture. Mm. And it was there that I said, I want to see as much of that as possible in what we're doing. And that was our first event. And now we're well into several hundred, over a thousand events and climbing them. Uh, once again, referencing Bruce Smith, who's the president and CEO of Wycliffe Associates, he points out that the persecution of Christians is so intense in some places that in order to translate the Bible into their mother tongue, the translators face incredible danger. Many of the translators have to cross the border to work safely. Some will never be free to return. Others face, uh, as I went through that laundry list, risk of violence, arrests, of torture, even death. Um, they ardently press on anyway. How does uh, how does this process work? And in particular, uh, the program that you helped to the training that you helped to develop the MAST mobilized, uh, mobilized assistance supporting uh, translation methodology. How does that work in those kinds of circumstances? Yeah. So um, what's nice is the mobilization part is very real. It's we can move, we can be mobile, we can be agile. And so, um, who can come to the table is the question that we ask the church. This is an underground church. It's a much more delicate question. And then we say, where can they come and how long can they come? And we have programs that say, well, we can train leaders over three days' time. And from that methodology training, technology training, let you go back into the community or underground church and spread this out the way that you know how to do so. Um, other events look a little bit more like, can we can we pull you out of where you are mm-hmm. and put you in a safe, safe place for a couple of weeks and actually transcribe? translate whole Gospels in that time, and then take those back home and continue on in the work, and then see the situation of what you can do coming out, staying in. Um, but it's it's both inside and outside. If we can train on the outside and put you in, or if we have to pull you out to train you on the outside, we'll do either one. And we have days to weeks um, programs to do so. I remember reading, I think it was in the Christian Post, about a translator in West Africa who was murdered. His wife was mutilated and uh, I've also heard the story of the pastor who was a hunted man, was found, uh, has been forced to flee his country, lives under a virtual death sentence. Uh, uh, he remains committed to the work of Bible translation for his language group. There is an, or can be a degree of danger involved in this kind of work. And yet uh, these are men and women of faith who are committed to providing for their countrymen and future believers um, the opportunity to read God's word. And what a gift that is. How can those of us who admire and uh, and support the work that Wycliffe is doing to help 
uh, those who desperately want to see God's Word in their language. How can we come alongside and help you in that effort? Yeah, so the first thing I would do is encourage you to look at our, our websites, um, and one of those is WycliffeAssociates.org. Another one is BibleInEveryLanguage.org, and those tell you a combination of, of different things. The first one is what, what exactly are we doing and how do these programs look? Um, both of those sites do a good job of that. One is more story form. One is a little bit more detail into the program. And then it's how can you be involved? There's numerous different volunteer activities to job activities that people can do. So there's the people skills and resource skills. And you can look up what are some of the things that are needed that are out there. And they can be anything from computer programming to um, writing curriculums to actually going out on the field and facilitating. There's also the giving part. Um, one of the biggest needs we have is meeting the demands of the request on the field. We have so many languages coming to us saying, we need this now, and we want to say yes to every single one of them. We don't even want to schedule them down the road. And so funding is our, is our challenge, is that we have streamlined this so much that we've reduced the cost from hundreds of thousands of dollars to tens of thousands of dollars, and the church can run towards, towards completion of a Bible. And so we need people to give as well. And that's also able to be done on those websites on a donate tab. And so I encourage all of that. We need all of we need the people, resources, technical skills, and the dollars to do this. Well, if, if you have any concern at all for the persecuted church, if you have uh, a sense of connection to the body of Christ abroad and the Great Commission, which we are all called to play a part in, let me encourage you to go to the website, WycliffeAssociates.org, and that's W-Y-C-L-I-F-F-E, Associates.org. I'll put a link on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page or BibleInEveryLanguage.org for more information. Uh, we can at minimum pray for the work of Wycliffe and those who are risking so much in order that the Word of God can be translated into their language, but there's much more that can be done as well. And I appreciate your mentioning that because I think most of us think, you know, if I'm not a linguist, then there's nothing I can do in this area. But as you pointed out, there's a lot all of us can do. Oh, yeah. It's it's a people chain and it's a long people chain and we need everything um, to, to actually contribute towards this. The infrastructure to do this work and to make it more streamlined and available is tremendous. Yeah. Well, Dan Kramer, thank you so much for talking with us today. I so appreciate that and your work with Wycliffe. Thank you. I appreciate what you're doing and getting the word out there as well. Thank God you bless. so much. Bye-bye. Again, Dan Kramer is Executive Director of Strategic Programs at Wycliffe Bible. Uh, talking about the work that they're doing in particular in areas where there is intense persecution, death threats, National Bible translators remain committed to translating God's Word. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show final segment. Uh, I'm going to take tomorrow off. Decided at the last minute going to take tomorrow off. So I'll give you a glimpse of some of what's coming up next week. Uh, We're going to talk with Sid and Jeff Holesclaw. They're the co-authors of Does God Really Like Me? You ever thought about that? Discovering the God Who Wants to Be With Us. The book is published by InterVarsity Press. I'm looking forward to that conversation. Also next week, we'll talk with um, Tom Cole, his ministry paid in full. There's some pretty dramatic and significant updates. As you know, they're establishing a seminary in the Oregon State Prison and Uh, There's been a significant amount of progress as well as national attention. There might even be a movie in the offing. Uh, We'll also talk next week with Catherine James. She's the um, author of A Prayer for Orion, 
A Son's Addiction and a Mother's Love. It's a difficult book to read, and I'm sure it will be a difficult book to talk about, but she has written it so that we uh, might be better informed and understand the, the challenge that we face as individual families and the challenge we face as a culture. Catherine James will be my guest next week as well. We're working on some other things, and we'll certainly let you know about that next week. Well, there's a new uh, study that uh, that came out that indicated that modern families uh, spend on average just five hours FaceTime with their kids per week, five hours per week. Well, the concept of a close-knit family is quickly becoming an antiquated notion. The study originates out of London, Ben Renner reports, Uh, And he points out that a recent survey of a thousand British parents, now this is a thousand, that's a pretty small sample, but it is alarming nonetheless. Um, A recent survey of a thousand British parents found that the average parent spent a mere five hours per week communicating face to face with their children. Now, presumably they live in the same residence. They are um, eating meals at roughly the same time and yet only five hours per week. More than half of surveyed moms and dads with children under the age of 18 said they feel distant from their kids. In all, 43% blamed their uh, measly family time on their kids spending too much time in front of the television, with another 51% saying their kids spend too much time in their bedrooms. Now, these are children with parents who presumably have authority in the home. Another 44% said their families disconnect as a result of their kids logging inordinate amounts of time on their phones during traditional family time in the evening. This sounds to me like a challenge for parents resting back from their household, the authority they have, to demonstrate what it means to be a family within a single residence. Well, the study commissioned by Cadbury Heroes also found that the average youngster starts to really avoid his or her parents around the age of 13. A significant 73% of respondents said the relationship with their children really changed once their sons and daughters became teenagers. And it seems to suggest they have no control over that. Well, nearly half or 46% of surveyed parents said they only talk with their kids for a maximum of four hours each week. Meanwhile, 54% said that they would love to spend more time with their children. To rectify the problem, over 80% of parents have taken an active interest in their children's favorite activities in an effort to reconnect. For example, 20% of parents have learned how to play the popular online video game Fortnite. 39% said that they've gotten involved with their uh, kids' hobbies. Another 33% have listened to their kids' um, favorite bands or musical artists in order to bond with them. Comically, 25% have even tried to adopt youthful slang words such as dope and YOLO. You can look them up if you have no idea. Well, all in all, the average British parent, and surely we're doing much better here on the continent. Anyway, all in all, the average British parent tries to designate five days per month for family time. Regarding family time, 44% believe getting together as a family is a great way to avoid technology for a few hours. Finally, 50% of respondents said they try to encourage their kids to be more open and honest with them. Of course, if you're not spending time, that might make a difference. It's just sort of a sad reflection on culture in general. I, I won't say our culture because this was... a uh, survey done in um, in the UK, in London, to be more precise. But my guess is it reflects pretty much what the challenges are for parents today. And to um, give way to the uh, bright lights of technology and to simply allow a kid to spend hours and hours in their room um, without initiating and requiring more family time seems to be a solution that uh, at least these parents, it never occurred to them or they're not um, willing to enforce. I, I really don't know. 
but this uh, modern family, as it's being referred to in this article, uh, is a reflection of where we are as a culture. How much influence does a parent have when they're spending? And these parents said four hours each week. The survey said five hours, and that's face-to-face with their kids each week. So who is influencing their children the rest of the time when they have no FaceTime or presumably quality time uh, with their parents, communicating, um, catching up, exchanging ideas, learning uh, what's of interest and how an individual is spending their time, what concerns them most, what they're fearful of. It's just a sad commentary on Western culture. And I would hope that the exceptions would be those households in which Christ is the center. And there's a recognition of the value of family, the necessity of the family unit, and the important role that moms and dads play in not only uh, providing for and caring for their offspring, but uh, communicating what values are worth preserving, how to spend your time, uh, whether or not um, certain decisions ought to be made with uh, uh, the use of technology and so on, modeling all of that with their kids as well. Anyway, I thought it was somewhat disheartening. And to follow up on the um, article I mentioned earlier in the program, Uh, That has to do with uh, why so many young people are unhappy. Uh, Part two, uh, Dennis Prager's uh, piece. And by the way, I posted both part one and part two on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page. If you'd like to read uh, each in their entirety, it's uh, it's disheartening, but it's not certainly not hopeless. There's a lot that can be done. And, uh, you know, we can begin by praying for a generation of uh, adults who perhaps did not spend much quality time with their parents and uh, by virtue of their lack of experience in that regard, are not spending a lot of time with their kids, something that can be changed relatively quickly if the uh, priority is, once again, family. Once again, I'm taking Friday off, so we'll share some of the best of the Georgine Rice Show. Uh, but uh, next week, uh, we'll talk on Monday with Sid and Jeff Holesclaw. Does God really like me? Discovering the God who wants to be with us. Published by InterVarsity. I want to thank James Blend for producing and Clark Hilton for engineering today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.